welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, as we uh, open this passage of your word, all of your word is good and glorious and wonderful, and yet this passage is like a holy of holies within your word. We're just so thankful that you've given us this passage, this beautiful passage about the work of your son, Jesus. And as it says in this passage, who has believed what has been heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We pray, Lord, that it would, tonight it would be us, that we would believe the things we hear, and that we would see your mighty arm revealed in your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that passage, those words that you just heard, are probably in Scripture the most detailed account of what happened on the cross and what it means. And if you're new to the Bible, it'd be easy for you to think that maybe that was written after the cross, after the people who saw those events had time to reflect on it. But here's the amazing thing. The passage that you just heard was written 700 years before Jesus' death. Let that soak in a little bit. 700 years before Jesus' death, those words were written, and yet they sound like a script of the events that happened on Good Friday. It's amazing. And even more than that, it's not just a prophecy of what would happen, it's actually a theology of the cross. It tells us not just what happened, it tells us what it means. And this incredible prophecy is five stanzas, as you can see, it starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13, five stanzas, three verses each. It's its own little poem which within the book of Isaiah. And within that poem, there's kind of three strands, there's three themes in here that are woven into this poem. And the three strands that we're going to look at are the suffering, the description of the suffering that Jesus had, the meaning, what it all meant, and then the victory. So we're going to see the suffering, the meaning, and the victory. Uh, the book of Isaiah as a whole is a book of both warning and hope. It's a book of warning because God's people had turned their back upon him and they were headed for judgment. They were headed for exile. And yet it's a book of hope because over and over again, God says, I'm going to send a Messiah that's going to restore you. And he talks about the Messiah in a couple ways here. You can see in verse 13 of chapter 52, he calls him the servant of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is to emphasize the uh, Messiah's obedience. He's the obedient servant. But he's also called the arm of the Lord. This is really cool. In verse 1 of 53, you can see, Who has believed what was heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That, of course, emphasizes God's strength the Messiah's strength. So he's both obedient and strong. And here's the surprising thing to the original hearers, the people that got to hear this for the first time about 700 BC, they would be surprised that that mighty servant that the Lord would send would restore his people through suffering. That's the surprising thing about this, is that his servant, this obedient, powerful servant would come and suffer. And in this passage, the first theme that we see is his suffering. And it's, it's predicted in great detail. The first one is how he would come into the world. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what was heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
This mighty arm of the Lord, this mighty strength of the Lord came in apparent weakness. He would be like a little plant, like a little sprout in dry ground, so easily that he could be damaged or stepped upon, right? The arm of the Lord comes in apparent weakness. It says that the servant of the Lord here would come with no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus came not as, you know, an evidently powerful, good-looking, handsome, like very obvious, you know, like a Thor-like God appearance, right? It's not that kind of an appearance. He was humble, humble birth. Uh, His upbringing was humble. He didn't look like a rescuer. He looked like a nobody. He looked like just another person in the crowd. It also says how the Messiah would ultimately be treated. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This treatment by the Jewish people, he was treated this way largely because of the kind of death he died, right? Verse 4 says this was the kind of death that the crowd assumed when they saw him die on that cross. They assumed that he must be a sinner that was being punished by God, right? Look at verse 4. It says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They assumed anyone that's dying this way on this cross has to have done something really terrible and deserve this. That was their thinking. It prophesies how he would die. It says in verse 5 that he would be pierced, that he would be crushed, that he'd be chastised, that he'd be wounded. This points to the way he died, right? He died by crucifixion. The Jews saw that death of crucifixion as a very clear sign of someone bearing the judgment of God. It says in Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So as they saw Jesus hanging on that cross, they thought this is the curse of God. He's being cursed by God. And the Jewish mindset to die in that way is a clear sign that he was God-forsaken. He's a God-forsaken man. Verse 14 of chapter 52 shows what the outcome of the crucifixion was like. It said this, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. After Jesus was beaten, after he was whipped, after he was crucified, he didn't even look human. He didn't even look human. And there were other reasons why the Jews at that time would think that Jesus was dying forsaken by God. He, he died uh, early, and he died childless. You look at verse 8. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, this was another sign to them. He died with wicked people, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. You remember he was crucified in between two other criminals. And so seen as clearly in that camp of wicked people. There's an interesting thing here about the rich man and his death. You know, Joseph Arimathea actually supplied a tomb for Jesus, so he had a strangely exalted burial. And we can see the way that the Messiah would take his coming death. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth like a lamb that led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. As Jesus went to the cross, he was like a lamb to the slaughter. He was an innocent man, but he didn't offer a defense. And that was really disturbing to Pilate. You guys remember how Pilate took that? It was super creepy to Pilate because Pilate was used to people, they would say anything to avoid being crucified. They would bring defenses like crazy. They would make excuses like crazy. And yet he had Jesus standing in front of him silent. He made no defense. Almost like he meant to die this way, right? like Jesus was volunteering. When Jesus came, guys, he died, and he fit this 700-year-old prophecy to the T. 
This is pretty solid, isn't it? You read this and you think, this is Jesus. This is what Jesus did. Is no mere man could have arranged to fulfill all this prophecy, and no mere man would want to. Right? No mere man would want to. There's this well-known YouTube video, maybe you guys have seen it, where it's an evangelist and he goes around in Jerusalem and he's, he's reading this passage to Jews in Jerusalem, right, in the middle of town. And uh, he reads it to them, he reads it to them in their native tongue, and then he says, hey, does this sound like anyone you know? Sound like anybody you've ever heard of? And most of them are like, I don't know. And they're like, do you know? There's this one guy that sheepishly goes, Yeshua? Yeshua indeed, right? This is clearly him. Everyone should be able to see that this is Jesus. 700-year-old prophecy. He comes and he lives it and he dies that way. Everyone should be able to see that this is the case. And the other thing that, that this should do is this should change everything about your life. If you believe that Jesus is truly that Messiah, that's long-awaited Messiah, it should change everything. You don't just go like, oh, that's neat, and then go about your business. You know, as that YouTuber was talking to these various people, if they made that realization that this is the long way to Messiah, wouldn't it be bizarre for them to just go, oh, I learned something neat today, and just go about their lives? It's got to change everything, right? You've got to build your whole life around this Jesus, if he really is who he said he is. He's the Messiah sent from God. We must follow him, right? We must lay everything aside and follow him. That's what happened to the Messiah. But what did it all mean? Because really the original hearers of this, this would have sounded strange so far. We got the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. He comes in what looks like weakness. He gets rejected. He dies forsaken by God, even though he was innocent. To the original hearers, it would be like, how does that solve our problem? You know, they got Assyrians at the door right? They got Babylon at the door. How does that help them? They're estranged from God because of their sins. They're under his judgment. They need to be restored back, but how does this servant help? And what's really cool is this passage doesn't just give us a prophecy of what happened. It gives us a theology of what it means, and so that's the second strand. What does it mean? What does it mean? You can start seeing the meaning in verse 4. It says this, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What looked to the crowd like Jesus being forsaken was Jesus being forsaken. What looked to the crowd like Jesus being forsaken was Jesus being forsaken by God. It was him being judged for sins, but not in the way the crowd thought, right? The crowd thought, well, anyone dying this way obviously has done something terrible and has it coming. Anyone that dies this way, surely God must be judging him for his sin. They were right about Jesus being judged for sins, but they were wrong about whose sins he was being judged for, right? You can see their surprise in verses 4 through 8 when they realize that the sins the Messiah was dying for were theirs, not his. Listen to the surprise when they realize, wait, they're not his sins he's dying for, they're dying for ours. Take a look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's the meaning of the cross? 
The meaning of the cross in theological terms is penal substitutionary atonement. You needed to learn a term. Penal substitutionary atonement, meaning this. Penal meaning that it's a penalty. It's a legal penalty Jesus is paying. Substitution is he took your place to pay that penalty. And atonement is that he is making us right with God, right? Atonement in the old English meaning of it is at one mint, that he is by dying on the cross, paying our penalty in our place, substitutionary, he is making us right with God. On the cross, we have God himself trading places with us and enduring the penalty for our sins. But you might ask, why do I need a substitute? Why would I need a substitute to be judged in my place? And the answer is, has to do with the character of God. Not the God I believe in, or you believe in, or you like to believe in, or you like to think there is. The God that actually exists, whether we believe in him or not, is a holy judge. He's actually a holy judge. He's a perfect judge. He's the kind of judge that doesn't let people off. There have been a lot of complaints lately about judges that let people off. This judge does not let people off. He always judges every single sin. Every sin gets judged, no exceptions. Your sins will be judged one way or another. But God is also, he loves you. Okay, he's a holy judge, but he loves you. He doesn't want to judge you. He wants to adopt you as his own child. So he made a way to punish your sin without punishing you. So on the cross, your sin is being punished without you being punished. It's through substitution. It's a substitute to be punished in your place. Now, this idea of substitution is something that is weird to our ears. We think, like, that's not the way the law works. That's strange. But to the Jewish ears, substitution would have been a very natural concept. They actually had it in their regular holidays. They had it in Passover, and they had it in Yom Kippur. Over and over again, they were taught about this idea of substitution. You guys remember Passover, Exodus uh, 12. The Jews are enslaved in Egypt. God sends Moses to get them out. He sends 10 plagues because Pharaoh won't let him go. And the final one is the plague of the death of the firstborn. Before he sends that plague, he tells his people, the Jews, what you need to do, slaughter a lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost to your home. Then when the angel of death comes, we'll, he'll just pass right over your home. Your, your children will not die from this plague because you'll have the blood of the lamb over your home. The angel of death comes, kills the firstborn throughout the land, except for the Jewish children. The only difference between an, an Egyptian home and a Jewish home that night was a substitute. They had a substitute. They had a lamb that was slaughtered in, in their place. Yom Kippur, this is a different way of doing it, Leviticus 16. On Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, this is a really cool thing. They would take two goats. One of them would be slaughtered for sins. There's another one that what the priest would do is he would, he would take that goat and he put both of his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess all the sins and transgressions and, and all of the iniquity of the people as if he's transferring it onto the goat. And then you know what they would do? Kick the goat out of town. They made him run away. If he came back, they ran him away again. He was the scapegoat. He was the one that, that's where scapegoat comes from. He was the one that took the sins of the people and took it away. And actually, the word that's used in that passage in Leviticus 16 is nasa, which means to bear away. Same word used here in Isaiah 53. That Jesus is that scapegoat. Jesus is the one that would bear our sin. Now, of course, these sacrificial animals, they were just placeholders until the ultimate lamb came, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. You know, no animal could truly take the place of a person for their sins. But what about a perfect human? What if you had a perfect human? Could a perfect human take the place of sinners and actually be their sacrificial offering 
the one that would take away sins. And he could, and he did, and his name is Jesus. Verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just as the high priest would lay his hands on and transfer the sins of the people to that scapegoat, God laid on him the sins of us all. And that's how you get that shocking transition between verse 9 and verse 10. Take a look at it. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, and then there's a shocking change here, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. In Jesus, you have the perfect man bearing the punishment for the sins of his people. And by the way, guys, if God was ever just going to overlook sin, that would have been the perfect time to do it, right? When the sin was on his innocent son. And yet it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. And, and the thing that that teaches us, guys, is that God judges sin. He judges sin. He never overlooks it. It always gets judged. It's either judged on Jesus or on you. And so the thing to do is give it to Jesus, right? Give it to Jesus as the priest kind of transferred his guilt to that scapegoat. You could, by faith, trusting in Christ, transfer it to him. Now, you guys might object. You might think, this seems also unfair to Jesus, right? He's innocent, and yet he's judged. This seems very unfair. Two things to consider about this. This servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 that bears that punishment on the cross, that servant of the Lord is the Lord God himself. What we have in the gospel is not some substitute that some innocent guy he found out on the street. This substitute is God himself taking the judgment you deserve. Isn't that amazing? And the other thing to realize is that Jesus volunteered for it. Remember verse 7. He didn't try to get out of this in any way. He didn't try to defend himself. Because getting crucified for you is exactly what he came to do. Okay? He is not a victim. He's a volunteer. And the thing that this shows for us, guys, is how much God loves you. Think about how much God loves you to do this. Think of how much he loves you. That he would take your place on the cross. I think when you interact with other religions and they talk about their gods or their God, uh, one thing you could ask them is, oh yeah, how much did it cost your God to love you? The gospel has the best answer to that. It cost him everything. He gave himself on the cross. God's love and his justice, guys, were perfectly satisfied to the cross. At the cross, we don't see love without justice. We don't see justice without love. We see God's justice and his love in perfect agreement. Everything that God is. God always acts out of everything he is. Every attribute he is, he always is exercising. And in the cross, you have God the judge. You have God the judge on the throne in love coming down to be your savior, to be punished, and, and to take the judgment that he must deal out to sin, he takes upon himself. He comes down from that, the throne of judgment and he gets on a cross. Guys, Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer. And then the third strand is Jesus wasn't just a volunteer. He was a victor. Okay? He was a victor. There's one thing we miss in Isaiah 53. It's got a very dark tone. It's got a lot of sadness and suffering. But there is a, a stream, a thread of victory here. Do you hear the note of victory? It pops out right in the darkest verse, which is so beautiful. So verse 10 is, I think, the darkest verse in the whole thing. And that's where the victory pops out. Listen, listen to it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then listen to this. He shall see his offspring. 
He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the portion with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you see the victory there? The cross wasn't just Jesus' suffering. It was his victory. And you say like, well, what could be victorious about the cross? It worked. It worked. This is the biggest, most difficult accomplishment in history. And it worked. Okay? He dies on the cross, he suffers for us, and he saves millions, maybe billions of people. It's victory. It's painful, but it's a victory. It's the greatest accomplishment ever. And you hear the notes of victory. Look at verse 10. It says, he shall see his offspring. This is so cool. What you're seeing here is a, a reversal of all the things that happened to him. Here you're seeing, oh, he didn't die childless, like we said earlier. He didn't die childless, far from it. He now has more offspring than you could possibly number, not just from Israel, but from every tribe and nation and people and language. It's victory. Or he knows in verse 10, he shall prolong his days. His days weren't cut short, actually. He got resurrected. He's been alive bodily ever since. A couple thousand years. His life was not cut short. It's victory, right? How about verse 10? It's the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Everything Jesus does succeeds. And even when it looks like defeat, it's victory. Isn't that amazing? How about verse 11? He's satisfied with his work on the cross. I love this verse. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That he looks back on the cross that he did there as someone who's had the most grueling day possible, but was successful in what they went out to do, looks back with just immense satisfaction on their work. He is satisfied. He's satisfied because by his knowledge, this righteous one, my servant, makes many to be accounted righteous. He bared their iniquity. He looks back on the cross with immense satisfaction. He's accomplished the greatest work in history, right? This little shoot in dry ground was the arm of the Lord, right? Or verse 12, he's enjoying the spoils of his victory in battle. Take a look at this. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong. The image here is of Jesus' ascension. That conquering King Jesus ascends up into heaven, marching through the streets of heaven, carrying the spoils of his victory and showering it out to his people, showering it out to us. Amazing? He's conquered. He's got the spoils of war. He's got the victory that he earned by the cross. And what he really enjoys most is giving it out to us. His victory is sweeter because he gets to share it all with us. All of his benefits he gives to us. His victory is our victory. So what's our response? How do we respond to this? I think you're taught that way, that you, know, you read a Bible passage and you think like, what's the application? <laughs> what's the application of this? The application's in verse one, actually. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's to believe it. This is good news to believe. For those of you guys that might be new to, to Christianity, might be new to the Bible, new to the gospel, the gospel is different than all religions. Because the gospel is news, not advice. All religions basically offer you advice. They offer you advice on what you should do to get yourself right with God. The gospel is totally different. The gospel is news of what God has done. What we do is we receive it. We enjoy it. Of course, it'll change your life if you really believe it. But the gospel is news of what's been done for you. 
All religions basically say do. The gospel says done. And I want you guys to just think right now about the cross and all that Jesus did. Does it look done to you? Does it look like he took care of your sin? Does it look pretty solid? When you think about it, do you think anything else needs to be added? You look at what Jesus did, you think about your sin, you think about what it would take to be right with a holy God when you think about all the things you've done in your life. Do you think he's got it taken care of? Does it look done to you? Here's the thing, guys. Here's what we do when we get religious. Is we go like, let me add a few things. I really appreciate what you're doing there. But I've got a few more things I could add that maybe God would be a little bit happier with me. You see the offense of that? It's done. This is news for you to believe. You need to believe this news. You say, well, man, when you first said that's the application, it sounded easy, but now it sounds hard. And it is. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe. It's hard to believe that God has really done all these things for us, but God has taken care of your sin. God has taken it away. It's been born away. It's gone. You've got to believe that. This is the good news that we have to believe. Believe the good news. Jesus suffered, guys, to give you everything you need. And I want to mention just a couple things in closing that he's given us because there's something that every single one of us need. If you're a fallen human, and you are, I know that you need the things in this passage. You might be like, I'm not religious, it's not really my thing, somebody made me come, whatever. I know for a fact, because you're a fallen human, you need all five of these things. And here's the five things. I know that you've done things that you feel guilty for. I don't think any of you guys are going to debate me on that. I know that you have desires that you know are wrong. I know you lack peace. I know you need healing, whether it's physical, spiritual, and I know you have a need to feel right, like you're okay. You need to feel, need to feel all right. And guys, all these things are those spoils of Jesus' victory. All these things are things that he delights to give. It says he's satisfied with his works as he sees his ability to give these things away to you. That if you'll trust in this news, you'll have it. For example, believe that he was pierced for your transgressions. These are the things you feel guilty for. Transgression is the Hebrew word pasha. It means willful rebellion. These aren't things you did accidentally. These aren't things you have really good excuses for. These are the things that really bother your conscience because they are willful. Transgressions were intentional. They aren't accidental sins. You do it knowing full well that you're rebelling against God. And the thing is, Jesus was pierced. Pierced. For your transgressions, he can take them away. Just trust in him and they're gone. Believe that he was crushed for your iniquity, verse 5. Iniquity, this is wrong desires. The Hebrew word is ava, and it means to be twisted out of shape. And it's the idea that inside our hearts are twisted. We have twisted desires. We have warped wants. There are things that we desire and want that we are ashamed of, there's things that we want, that we, we wrestle with. Even as Christians, we continue to wrestle with these kind of warped desires. They make us feel so far from God. And this passage says that Jesus was crushed for your iniquity. If you believe that and, and you can receive freedom from him, it's a process. He'll do it over time. But he has promised that he will, over time, bring those twisted desires under control. That he will untangle them, so to speak. We shouldn't let our iniquities, our twisted desires, keep us from, from closeness with the Lord if we believe the gospel. 
I know a lot of you guys have things, they're twisted desires that you have, and it makes you feel so defiled and so dirty and so outside of God's love. That's a lie. You need to trust the gospel. He has been crushed for your iniquities. Believe that he has been chastised for your peace. The word peace there is the Hebrew word shalom. It's this sense of, this deep sense of well-being. The kind of deep sense of well-being that can only be artificially created maybe on, on vacation. You know, like a really good one with little kids. And, um, but the real thing is it's an enduring sense of well-being that the Holy Spirit gives us in our hearts. A sense that all is right with the world. Jesus wants you to feel that kind of peace. He wants you to know that you are right with God and that God is 100% for you. And if he's for you, then nothing can be against you. And so you have this like deep sense of well-being. Everything's okay because I'm right with God and he is 100% for me. If he is for me, no one can be against me. Jesus suffered to give you that shalom. Believe it. Receive his peace. Believe that he has been wounded for your healing. Because we all need healing. Whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual, we all need healing. Jesus was, think about this wording. He was wounded for your healing. Isn't that amazing? He was wounded for your healing. Come to him. Every time you come to him for healing, you're coming trusting that his wounds have power. That he has been wounded for your healing. Believe that you have been accounted righteous. Verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Man, this is something we all need. You guys don't even know how much you crave this. We are so desperate to feel like we're right, that we're in the right. It's the reason we judge others. It creates so much division in our relationships. We have this sense to feel justified, to feel right, to feel vindicated. And the thing is, is that what Jesus has done by dying in your place is that his righteousness is transferred to you. He, he makes you to be, listen to the wording, accounted righteous. That means even when you're not, you're counted that way. Isn't that amazing? The second you believe, you're accounted righteous, perfect, like Jesus. You're accounted that way. It's an accounting thing. It's shady accounting, right? <laughs> it would be if it was accounting. But he's paid the debt for it, so it's not shady, right? He accounts you righteous. Deep down inside, we know that we're not right, and it's part of the reason why we're always trying to prove we're right to other people is because deep down we know we're not right with the most important judge, which is God. And Jesus, if you believe in him, you'll be accounted righteous. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You want to know how to make Jesus really satisfied with his work? Receive it. <laughs> the thing that makes him so happy, it says he will see and be satisfied. Every time a sinner comes to him and says, I want that, Jesus is like, man, that was so worth it. Isn't that amazing? Every time you as a Christian come back again for more, he says, man, that was so worth it. Isn't that great? Because you think like, you know, you've sinned the same way the hundredth time. And you think if you return to that high priest, you're going to get the cold shoulder or something and say, hey, come back when you're more serious. That's not the way Jesus is. He's like, oh, this is great. This is exactly why I died. It's so worth it. So worth it because I could give that to you right now. So worth it because I could forgive that transgression. So worth it because I give you freedom from those iniquities. So worth it because I could give you that peace. So worth it because I give you that healing. It's so worth it because I could account you righteous even though you did that thing for the time you can beyond counting. He sees it and he's satisfied. It makes his suffering sweeter every time we draw grace from him. Think of that. When you repent of your sin, 
Think of that. He sees it and he's satisfied. He's like, this is what I came to do. Here's the thing, guys, just in closing. Jesus, and I say this not just for the benefit of people who don't believe, but for people that do, for you guys that are Christians, most of you. Jesus has come and he fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy. That means there's absolutely no reason to disbelieve he's the Messiah. Can we agree on that? There's like zero reason to wonder, is it him or should we wait for another? This is super straightforward, super solid, right? We can all agree he's the Messiah, okay? And he's offering us the five things we need most. Forgiveness, freedom, peace, healing, and righteousness. There is absolutely no reason for you to pass on this. There is no reason for you to get in your car and go, yeah, I'll think about it. Like, it's crazy, right? It's craziness. And for those of us Christians, just believe it. You know, see how solid your faith is. It's so solid, guys. It all checks out. Like, you know, he fulfills this prophecy. This all checks out. You're not believing this blindly. This all checks out. He's shown us that it's true. And then the benefits he's given, I just say, come to him for those. Come to him for those five things. He delights to give them. He suffered to give them. Who has believed what has been heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed your mighty arm to us tonight in this passage. Thank you so much for even inspiring Isaiah to write this, having very little idea of what he was writing about probably, but knowing that it must be something really, really good. And we just thank you that it was recorded for our faith so that we can know how solid this is to believe in your son, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for those things that he's given us. Crushed for our iniquities. Pierced for our transgressions. Wounded for our healing. Chastised for our peace. Died to count us righteous. We pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we worship, as we go about our weekend and we gather again for Easter, Lord, just cause that to be a settled certainty. You have paid it all. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.